every time people stepped into saying these things that were really challenging to say out loud that they felt they would be judged for or shamed for, if we met them with non-judgment and love, we'd watch them change and become different people. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have an awesome guest. I think this is going to be a really cool interview today, and I'm grateful that you all chose to listen to it and tune in. Today, we're talking to Corey Blake, and he's the publisher of Conscious Capitalism Press. He's also the founder and CEO of Roundtable Companies, whose purpose is to tell the story behind yours. RTC's clients include Microsoft, Arquito, Magoosh, and First United Bank. Corey has spent 12 years helping business leaders use storytelling to transform themselves and their organizations. He pioneered the business comic book, packaging, and publishing dozens of titles, including bestsellers by Tony Shea, Marshall Goldsmith, and Robert Cialdini. Prior to starting RTC in 2005, Corey was a professional actor in Los Angeles, starring in one of the 50 greatest Super Bowl commercials of all time. As a funny guy on camera, his work Earned production companies, Belding, Addy, Cannes, and London International Advertising Awards. He earned the Screen Actors Guild Union Card, working eight days a week on the film Fight Club. And among numerous television shows, he guest starred and co-starred on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and The Shield. He is an avid sponsor of Conscious Capitalism and Social Venture Network, a member of the Young Entrepreneur Council and a contributor to the Small Giants community. His work with books and graphic novels fielded 15 independent publishing awards and mentions and features in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Inc., Forbes, and Wired. Corey is also the creator of the Vulnerability Wall, and the Vulnerability is Sexy Card Game. We're definitely going to talk about those. His documentary of the same name won the 2017 Addy and Hermes Awards for branded content. Corey's recent passion is extreme vulnerability in the workplace. He studies regularly at both the Stegen Leadership Academy and the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland. Corey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Richard. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So there are so many things that we can talk about. So many of these are going to be interesting and fun. But you're doing all these things. And as you know, I love to talk to my guests about their why. Was it were you kind of hatched with this mission that you wanted to help others through storytelling and and the things that you're doing through conscious capitalism, or was it, what was your journey like along the way that that got you to where you are today? Well, I'll share that I'm a, I'm a believer that we all have multiple superpowers, and and there's an origin story to each one. So I'll, I'll throw one at you that was really a, what I feel like is my very first uh, origin story to the direction that I headed. I was raised in a Jewish household by a Jewish mother, 
uh, the only boy in the household, which means that I received all of her attention, all of her, uh, what I call now her light. And for the first five years of my life, I believed I was special. I was here to do something magnificent in the world. I was the only thing that mattered. <laughs> that was my, my purview. And then around my fifth birthday, uh, my mother uh, was struck with bipolar disorder and mm -hmm. severe depression. And her light, again, this is my interpretation as an older person now, but her light went out for about a year as she navigated that and eventually got medicated in the right way. And during that year, uh, because her light was the only thing that I understood the world through in the absence of that, uh, I felt like I was stumbling around in the dark. I felt invisible. And there was a tremendous amount of, uh, of pain for me as a five-year-old kid uh, around um, uh, feeling like the person who had been everything was now the most dangerous person to me because she was very easy to set off during that time period. When my world went from uh, this person who was the safest place to the person who was the most dangerous, I had to learn some skills in order to survive. I had to learn how to read the energy of a room to know if I was safe. And I had to learn how to read the energy of my father and my sister in order to kind of determine the level of safety around where I was. And that became the genesis of uh, my pathway. I also had to learn uh, how to make mom laugh. Because if mom was laughing and mom was happy, things just were smoother. And so that was also the origin of, of this performer that became a huge aspect of my identity and led me to LA and then eventually uh, was kind of put to bed for a decade before I, I brought it out again. Isn't that interesting? So really out of necessity and in, in your own word, survival, you develop this performer aspect of your persona, which launched a career for you. It did. And I mean, we, in our work, we're constantly unpacking these kinds of things for people. And I find everyone's, everyone's got them. I'm not unique in that way. Mine is unique to me. But we all have these moments of tremendous pain that uh, my experience is we, we tend to spend our life figuring out how to turn it into a gift to share with the world. I love that. And so let's spend a little bit of time. I just, I, I can't not talk about Fight Club sure. and, and your Super Bowl commercial time. So talk to us, what was the commercial you were in? One of the, you said one of the 50th funny uh, commercials from this 50th, one of the 50 funniest commercials from the Super Bowl. Hayden, thank you for, for editing. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, it was one of the 50 greatest Super Bowl commercials because it's not necessarily funny, but it was one, one of the 50 greatest Super Bowl commercials of all time. It was for Mountain Dew. It was a takeoff on Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody that aired uh, at the beginning of the second half of the Super Bowl in the year 2000. Uh, blast to work on. It was directed by Sam Bayer, who directed Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. He was an iconic, insane director who would throw things and have tantrums, and he was brilliant at the same time. So that that was a, an exciting project to work on. It was my it was my first pro, like super professional gig was a was that Mountain Dew commercial. Also, just consequently, I have to share, first commercial ever played in a movie theater. You're all welcome for that one. How about that? How about that? <laughs> Thank you for being angry at you. Uh, so in, in terms of the, the commercials, so then did Fight Club, I don't recall when Fight Club came out. Did Fight Club come out after that? Fight Club uh, uh, probably came out after it, but was filmed right before then. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm imagining 1990. 99 Eight or right? 99 yeah okay i think so and so now you you've done that you've been on a couple of shows at, at this point in your career are you thinking that you know you're on your way to becoming 
an actor and a, and a megastar? Like, was that in your mind at that point? It, it, it was for a period. And, not, and, and the thing that actually did it was, a, was a, another commercial. I got hired to play basketball in the nude for a commercial. And uh, it was originally pitched to Bally's and Bally's Total Fitness said it was too risque, but the production company wanted to film it anyway. And we, we shot it and that was the one that just cleaned up awards, but they had to give it away to this small little gym in Hermosa Beach called Yard Fitness so they could air it on cable for two weeks and be eligible for awards. When that thing was cleaning up, every agent and uh, commercial agent in Hollywood wanted to sign me. Like I was, it was a really special time. And that was when I thought, okay, this is, this is, this is where it's all starting. And then it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, when, how long did you play that game? Like at what point did you realize that maybe the acting thing wasn't going to happen? And then once that realization happened, how did you start transitioning into you know, these other things that are more in line with what you're doing today? Well, I'll show that the confusion actually was what happens when it is happening, but not in the way that we expected, or you know, for me, what, not in the way that I expected, and not in a way that was gratifying. So I was getting hired for big commercials. I was uh, doing these guest appearances. All that was growing of all my friends. Like I was the one who didn't have a day job. I was an actor. I earned my living that way. I got like when you do a commercial at least when you did back then, you got a lot of free money in the mail. You didn't know what you were going to get paid. You got paid to show up. And then when it airs, you just start receiving checks. And there were days like I would go to the mailbox day after day after day, thousands of dollars in the mailbox. It's a crazy experience. And it's also a mind screw because here, here I was using my talents to encourage kids to drink soda water and stuff cheeseburgers in their face. right? And so that became this challenging discrepancy. I didn't go out to Hollywood to become a commercial actor. I went out to do something that I felt was more serious. But what you don't learn or what I didn't learn during my college education was that everything in the industry is siloed. So growing all these relationships in the commercial world was not going to parlay into these other opportunities, right? So it was simply going to carve a deeper groove down a path I didn't want to go. And so when I did that commercial and, uh, for, for uh, Yard Fitness, and it was so popular. It was one of the first commercials to be shared on the internet, like all around the world. That uh, Email was popular then. The internet hadn't even come out yet for the public. It was shared via email like a million times or some craziness like that. So here I was doing this thing. And along came Polly, uh, Ben Stiller's film, took a scene that was very, created a scene that was very similar. Uh, Nike created a, a huge commercial of a guy running through a stadium naked, right? Like, so we inspired these things. The production company was getting all kinds of crazy work. And it was not moving my life in the direction that I had hoped, which was an incredibly confusing experience. It became very depressing. And I really started turning inward on myself, started smoking an incredible amount of pot. Like I was just retreating from the world out of that confusion. And uh, that discrepancy, eventually I call it my two-year temper tantrum, where I was trying to get the, the universe to bend to me. And it obviously doesn't, doesn't work well. <laughs> Um, eventually I, I kind of came to the realization of I'm going out on these auditions and I'm pissed off that I have to go and do it. I'm not happy. And some young kid would really love this opportunity. So I should probably let go and, and let someone else who would love this do it. And I shifted over my attention to producing and directing out in Hollywood. And that kind of inspired this whole storytelling and being the leader of a story and building teams around stories. That whole direction became available to me then. 
So let's talk about that. And that's interesting. It was really out of this conflict. And I, know you, you, I love that you referred to it as a two-year temper tantrum. But by the time your tantrum was over, it sounds like you had some clarity in terms of what you wanted to do with your life. And it was storytelling. That's a, that's a great point. Like It didn't feel like clarity at the time. Right. So it, it became necessity. I was getting married. It was 2005. I had been out in LA for nine years at that point. And in getting married and not liking the acting in loving the producing and directing, I kind of felt particularly around getting married, like I needed to figure out something that was more predictable and I needed to kind of do something more quote unquote normal. And I knew how to, how to write certain things. So um, I, I jumped on Craigslist, which was the place to go back then, right? And, um, and started seeing all these opportunities for people to... Where, where people needed writers. But they were needing writers for things that I didn't necessarily have expertise in. Med- medical writing, maybe dating and relationships, or different things were like... I, it wasn't necessarily in my bag. And I kind of became this conduit between businesses that needed writers and writers that wanted more work, but really didn't understand business. And somehow that made sense to me. And by becoming that conduit, thankfully, after only about seven or eight months of doing that, um, people started approaching me about helping them with books. And then suddenly this thing that was very practical became creative. And the fir- one of the first books I did was Robert Renteria's From the Barrio to the Boardroom. And it's his incredible story of uh, dropping out of high school, getting into gangs and drugs, almost getting shot in the face, having a complete turnaround. Eventually, the guy becomes VP of a publicly traded company and wanted to give back to the Latino community by telling his story and helping pull more kids out of the ghettos. We wrote that story, that book, put it out into the world. 7 a.m. the morning after it got published in the paper about his book, he gets a phone call from a woman who's crying on the other end of the phone asking, where have you been? And that was a moment, you know, hearing that story and hearing him tell it and, and watching the reaction from people who were reading the book and kids who were changing their lives, that all became incredibly addictive. And I would say that that became this new focus of chasing that experience. How do we use stories to connect people and to help them reshape their own identity? That is a really powerful story. And I love the way that you described that and, and certainly... You know, that, that is, you know, for so many people who are in this helping space, they get kind of that taste of having an impact. And it sounds like that you got that bug for sure. I, I wanted to ask you some questions, though, because now you're in this world where you're doing organizational storytelling. That is, you're helping companies tell their story. So talk to us about, you know, that sounds like a very intuitive thing. And you would think that most people who are running organizations and they have marketing departments, or even if they're you know, entrepreneurs and they're doing their own copy, probably would have a good handle on it. But I suspect you're going to tell me that's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I might piss off a few advertising people in the way that I, <laughs> that I speak to this. But, but ultimately, um, I find that, that when I was in advertising as a commercial actor, the job of the advertising company was to be clever. It was not to be authentic. And I think that that's become this huge gap. And so often companies are hiring people or are telling their stories in ways that are projecting an image that they believe the public needs to see in order for the company to move where it wants to move. Very controlled. Very, ultimately, it becomes very inauthentic. And we feel that and we experience that. And I think if, 
the advent of social media has taught us what that looks like and what it's not. Like we, we understand that most everything we see in our Facebook feed is someone's projection of what they want us to see. We get that intuitively, right? So there's this new awareness. And so organizations that are still stuck in the old model of we need something clever to hook our people, uh, I think that they're missing out on a real opportunity to instead express what is beautifully authentic about the business. I'm a believer that everyone who starts a business or is leading a business is an artist. And they're using that business as a canvas, essentially painting a version of the world that they want to see. That's a story worth telling. That's a story worth sharing. Why is that the world that you envision? Why is that what you've assembled this whole group of people around? And here's the the kicker is that people within the organization and the, the owners or leaders themselves, they often haven't had the experience of unpacking that story. They don't know the origin of their superpowers and what they're doing. They're just doing it intuitively. So telling the story of it is not easy for them because they, they haven't gained access to how to articulate that. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. I know that everybody has a different story. Everybody's path is unique. But is there, in your experience, have you found that there's a common matrix for how to tell your story as an organization? So my, my approach with this, my, my belief is um, that, that uh, the tone of the story is set by uh, the people who are most influential in the organization. Usually that's ownership, leadership to a certain degree. And then oftentimes there are people throughout an organization who just have that, they don't necessarily have the title, but they have this human energy about them that yields a tremendous amount of influence. Those key people are essentially driving the narrative of the organization and everything kind of spins around them. And if we can understand what's motivating their behavior, what from their past, very much like I shared with you about my five-year-old story, like we've all got that stuff. And it is, it is, it is internal programming. It is hard drive stuff of how we see the world and how we decide to behave in the world. Uh, I, often, I, mean, I feel like in many ways, we're not in control until we unpack that story and understand how it moves in us. Once we unpack the story, then we start to create more choice, which is where organizations can use storytelling as a transformative effort and a transformative opportunity to improve their organizations. So when you say improve the organizations, are you talking from an internal standpoint? Are you talking from a customer interaction standpoint? Everything and everything above? The, the whole, the, there's a storytelling ecosystem around every organization. Either you're intentional about it or you're not. Regardless, it exists, right? So by being more intentional about it, by exploring our stories and what's driving the behavior of our people within organizations, including the customers and all the stakeholders, the more that we understand that uh, and unpack it, the more that we can be choiceful about what we want to change, shift, improve. Essentially, until I know what the story is, I can't make a decision if it's 
if it's really serving me anymore or if it needs to be revised. Some stories are ready to be revised. They're simply a story. They're not our reality. They're just a narrative we've attached to an experience and we're letting it control how we behave. When we can unpack that, we can start working with it. If we change the stories within an organization, we can change the behaviors, which then change the results that a company might be after. Very powerful and really exciting when we get to watch it work. It sounds exciting. And I know that that's something you're obviously very passionate about. I could hear that as you were talking about it. One of the things I know you're also very, very passionate about is a vulnerability. And that was something that we mentioned in your introduction. Talk to us about that. Well, uh, so we, we we kind of found our, our way originally when we started writing books. Um, Robert was a unique case of a, a business leader. We, we we did attract a huge number of coaches and high-level consultants. And so I had this immense education around that industry. I hadn't known what coaching was in business. I was a theater major, right, and working in LA. So, um, so that opened my world to this experience of taking people on the hero's journey. And while the hero's journey is part of you know the actor dialogue, I had no idea that it existed in business. And so I was waking up to that. So we write a very specific kind of book for people, which we call the book they were born to write. It's not an information product. It's not 10 ways to do this better and be awesome like me. It is, here's who I am in the world. Here's what's emerging for me. Here's where I'm going. Want to be a part of it? Let's go. And in writing that book with people, we found that what they were willing to share with us at the beginning was very different than the things that started to come out at the third month. The sixth month, they were starting to say say things out loud they'd never said to their spouse. The ninth month, they were starting to say things out loud they'd never said to themselves. And there's an identity shift that happens when we start voicing our story in those ways. And what we determined through that process was every time people stepped into saying these things that were really challenging to say out loud that they felt they would be judged for or shamed for, if we met them with non-judgment and love, that there was this opportunity for identity shift. And we'd watch them change and become different people. And so the way that we languaged that was we would start saying, this vulnerability, it's sexy. It lights us up, man. I mean, when you're, when you're a witness to somebody whose voice is shaking and they're saying something out loud that they're terrified to say, um, it's a sacred space. And so through that process, recognizing that, that we were so lit up by vulnerability, we started asking the question of how can we apply that kind of a process into different situations outside of book writing. And we came up with these art installations, we came up with this game, and it kind of became this through line of our business through all the storytelling that we do to that, that key of authenticity. So this is interesting. And I, I, we mentioned the card game. So one of the things that is resonating with me is, is, yes, you know, as people start peeling back those layers and they become more comfortable, you know, their true self comes out, which is very important. But it's also kind of dichotomous in that societally, particularly in males, there is uh, a kind of macho orientation, right? Like historically, I think that's starting to change some, but historically, vulnerability is something that women have typically been far more open with than men. So talk to us about how you've managed that when you've come across it and, and any, I know anecdotal, but any, anything that you've seen which might suggest that that is starting to change. I have a very biased viewpoint because I tend to attract people who are at some point on their personal development journey, 
right? So the people that, that I tend to um, surround myself with or who are attracted to our company, I get to watch the kind of men who, are, who have been practicing this a little bit or at least open to it. Um, when I come up to, uh, against people who have a tremendous amount of resistance, like they don't look me in the eye if I'm within 10 feet and they know I'm the vulnerability guy, they literally will turn their bodies away from me. Now, this is the story I'm, I'm telling is that it's attached to the vulnerability thing. I don't necessarily know the reality, but it happens frequently, especially when I'm speaking at an event after I've like, there are people who would love for me to die on stage. That would make them happy because it's too <laughs> uncomfortable. But the, but the notion of, of, uh, of watching vulnerability, particularly in the business community, the way I would language this is right now, I think, even conscious businesses or businesses that are really trying to practice this, if we set on a scale of one to 10 what's available, most people are still dabbling at a two or a three. And, and, and that's, that's exactly where they need to be. I think that's awesome. I think there's a lot of room left for massive change to be impacting our communities, our work by continuing to level up into greater amounts of vulnerability. I see it as this massive driver. I mean, when we use vulnerability to get real with each other, the things that we can then do when we're solving business challenges become so much more simplistic. But in the absence of that, there's posturing, there's there's hierarchy, there's separation. My idea is better. I need to be right. There's all this other crap that gets in the way. When we break things down and start getting vulnerable and, and use that as a practice, we become human beings who are trying to solve a problem together. It's a completely different way from which to operate. And so imagine somebody is listening to this and they're identifying with the person who's at a two or a three on the scale. Maybe they don't quite want you to die on stage. <laughs> but they're certainly, <laughs> but they're, they're certainly not quite ready to take some of these leaps that somebody is if they're at a seven or an eight. What's your advice for getting started with being more vulnerable? Well, first off, recognizing that, like, do they perceive value in it, right? So, so take my opening story, right? Um, talking about my mother that way, talking about my, what I call, quote unquote, like the origin of a superpower. That's not vulnerable for me to share anymore because I, because I like, I'm comfortable in that space. But if you've never talked that way before, you might fear sounding ridiculous on a, particularly on a podcast, you know, for, for business related folks. So if the listener can put themselves in the, in, in the shoes and ask the question of, did that help their engagement? Did that help deepen their learning and create a positive experience that they heard that story? Okay. Well then maybe there's an opening here to play. Once we get into a vulnerability practice, it's, it is like many things, it is a practice. It is a workout. There are ways to strengthen the muscle. Like as an example, you can do, um, you can do greater uh, weights or more reps, right? Which in the vulnerability world, if I have something that, um, that I, I, I want to practice vulnerability, right? Coming up with something that I feel like feels a little dangerous to share. Finding the safest person I can to share that with is a really great first step. Right. And and setting it up in a way where I'm asking before I do it, hey, I'm gonna share something vulnerable with you. Do you have the ability to be present with me as I do it? And can you withhold judgment and not try to fix me? Like the setup is important. Um, if they're willing to say yes, then sharing that, if it's a positive experience, then you increase your weights by sharing something that's more vulnerable, or you increase your reps by sharing the same thing with slightly less safe people. The more that we do that the more that we recognize in the world, oh, there's actually a lot of power in me experiencing and sharing this way. People see me differently. Opportunities emerge that I didn't see before. 
that changes the uh, the perception of the person and allows for more opportunity and and more exploration. I love that. I think that's such great advice. And I, and I wanted to shift gears a little bit just in the interest of time because I know conscious capitalism and as a subset of that conscious capitalism press are so important to you. For those of us who are not familiar with conscious capitalism, talk to us a little bit about what that does. Sure. Um, I was introduced to Conscious Cap in uh, 2014. At that point, the, my business was um, uh, eight years old and I had just been head down, like blinders on, chasing my goals, what I thought I wanted for the business. And one of our clients is a gentleman named Jeff Sinelli, who's the founder of uh, Witch Witch Sandwiches, um, which is like 400 sandwich locations around the country, lots in Dallas uh, or in Texas in particular. Um, and Jeff just said to me, um, don't ask any questions, but I want you to I want you to just pay your money and go to this Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit. And Jeff had been teaching me this theory of follow the yellow brick road, which is a rather brilliant theory, I think, for business people, where you don't ask questions and you just, you just do things when people that you respect and care about tell you to do them. And so I took that opportunity. I showed up in Austin. Um, it's like a five grand investment, right? So it's a good price tag. Um, it's a commitment. It's a high-class event. At that point, they were attracting about 200 CEOs and presidents for that two-day extensive workshop. And I landed there and had that experience that so many people have when we're going to a new conference of what in the hell am I doing here? Who am I to even be here? It's very disorienting. There's a lot of internal chatter and hierarchy. Who am I compared to this person or that person? People, you know, it's a 5 million and up revenue community, but there are people running multi-billion dollar corporations and then there are people, you know, anywhere from 5 million to 100 million, whatever. And so there's a lot of head chatter, a lot of head games. By the end of that experience, I had the recognition of, uh, oh, I know exactly why I'm here. That was a really powerful moment for me, the awareness of I spent my life um, investing in my intuitive nature, my embodied experience of the world as an actor. Like It's all about the body experience and, and what is my body telling me and how am I emoting and how am I sharing with the world from that standpoint. And I was surrounded by people who had invested very heavily in their intellectual capacity because that's what they think thought they needed to get where they wanted to go. And in this consciousness movement, what so many of them were after was the thing that was intuitive for me. And so I felt a tremendous desire to serve that community. And I felt a tremendous immediate amount of loyalty to that community. And when I offered to contribute, that was a very vulnerable experience for me. And I was met with an incredible amount of generosity and kindness by the woman, uh, Julia Van Amerongen, who was the producer of the event at the time and has become a great friend. And what that community ended up becoming for me was a, a playground for me to test out and, um, and allow this kind of new emergence of, of my own identity to play out. And then I would, I would test things there and then I would take them out into the world. And for me, it was the emergence of the performer I used to be and the business person that I had become. And in doing so, um, I started kind of becoming um, recognized amidst the community, particularly at the national level, because I would participate in, in those events. And I would speak frequently and, and lead the group in different things. I, I, I got you know, what, 500 you know, business leaders throwing snowballs at each other one morning as an opening to an event. Like, yeah, I'd like to do crazy fun stuff. They'd let me do it. And so eventually there was this recognition of, okay, there's all of this wisdom in the community. 
And there's this, this phenomenon that I'm kind of paying attention to right now, particularly in the consciousness community or the people who are playing with what is consciousness in business. And that phenomenon is um, we all think we understand what we're talking about when we talk about consciousness and business. And I find we, have, we all have completely different definitions of what it is. I might be a conscious communicator. That might be my gift. Like I can really excel in that space. That doesn't mean that when it comes to the agreements my organization uses, conscious law, that I have a clue or can take the, the knowledge and wisdom from one area and apply it to the next. And everyone's got different expertise and everyone's got all of this value to share with each other. And we weren't. We were, we were siloed, right? Uh, all thinking we had the kind of same definition. And so I felt a strong pull to support the community by helping to package the wisdom that is contained within the community under a single umbrella. And so I worked with the leadership of Conscious Capitalism and we launched Conscious Capitalism Press and I think in July of last year, and we will release our first books in April. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. I'm really proud of it. Corey, I have absolutely loved our discussion today. There were so many good nuggets of wisdom that you shared throughout. As you know, I love to wrap up every episode by asking my guest a single question, and that is, what is your biggest helping? The one single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? I think the vulnerability is sexy piece. There's something that I just have to mention it, but there's something else that I'm gravitating to, which is that um, leadership is a lifetime lifestyle commitment. As leaders, we build the companies that, this is something Rand Stegen, a good friend of mine says, we, we get the companies we deserve, right? The, the businesses that we build are a reflection of who we are. If we want to have more impact in the world, we have to start with ourselves. So committing to doing our own personal work on this journey expands our capability as business people immensely. And it is a lifestyle commitment. Like it is an everyday practice. And I wish for more people to be entering and taking advantage of that as an opportunity. I love that. Corey, where can people find you? Thank you. Um, they can certainly find me at roundtablecompanies.com. It's companies with an IES. Um, we do have an awesome giveaway around, particularly around articulating purpose, uh, roundtablecompanies.com slash purpose. Um, it's a download of a, a, a guided meditation and a worksheet. And it's something that I deliver in person frequently to leaders. So I'm super stoked to be offering that to folks uh, around how do you articulate the essence, very much like that story I told you at the beginning, like, how do you find those nuggets of what defines you and, and makes you behave in the world? So, uh, so they can certainly find that at roundtablecompanies.com. Perfect. And then for those of you behind the wheel or at the gym, we've got you covered. We'll have everything Corey Blake and Roundtable Companies in the dailyhelping.com show notes for his episode, as well as in the Daily Helping app. Well, Corey, thank you so much for coming on today. I loved this episode. This was a blast for me. Thank you. I had such a great time. I really appreciate it. Awesome. And I want to thank each and every one of you who tuned in as well for checking out the podcast. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. <laughs>